Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is episode 109 of the Secret Library podcast. My guest this week is Rebecca Mackay. And I'm really excited to share this episode with you. But first, a couple of announcements. One is that the Coffee Shop Writers Group is open for registration this week and will be open until June 30th at midnight. However, we are postponing the start time because I've gotten so many feedback, um, so much feedback from people who wanted to join saying, oh, I'm really wanting to do it, but... Um, I'm a little crazy until the fall, which let's be honest, I am too. So we're going to push the start date of the program back to October, have it go the same amount of time, take a Christmas break, and then come back in um, 2019. So this will be a same length of the program starting in October. So, but anybody who signs up during this enrollment period before um, the end of June, will get a free session with me and then we will close enrollment on the 30th and then reopen for regular enrollment in September. I want to thank everybody who reached out about the question about transcripts, how people are feeling about having transcripts of the show. Um, basically sounds like they're nice but not an absolute necessity and we didn't have enough people reach out saying yes I must have them. So I think we're going to pause on transcripts for now because they are a lot of work to complete. But looking forward to having them back in the future. If you want to be sort of a part of the board of directors of the show, so to speak, um, you can do so by supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash secret library. And that's where a lot of this feedback on the transcripts has been coming from. Our, our little board sends me messages and answers questions about what do you want to see on the show? What's most important to you? Um, and I'm really enjoying those conversations with everyone. So that is our announcement portion for this week. And now on with the interview. Rebecca Mackay is the Chicago-based author of the short story collection Music for Wartime, which appeared in 2015, and also of the novels The Hundred Year House, which was the winner of the Chicago Writers Association Award, and The Borrower, a booklist top 10 debut, which has been translated into eight languages. Her short fiction won a 2017 Pushcart Prize and was chosen for the Best American Short Stories for four consecutive years, 2008 through 2011. The recipient of a 2014 NEA Fellowship, Mackay is on the MFA faculty at Sierra Nevada College and has taught at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, Tin House, at Northwestern University. And her latest novel, The Great Believers, is out now, and anyone who reads the New York Times will have seen it very recently on the front page of the book review, which was so exciting to see when that came out, um, because I just love this book. I really love this book. I loved talking to Rebecca about it, about the process of really diving deep into some very rich, intense, and um, 
complicated material, which wasn't the original source of the inspiration for the book. The Chicago AIDS crisis is very, very central in this novel, but it was not what she set out to write a novel about, as you will learn in this conversation, which was something I really enjoyed hearing about talking to her. So I think you're going to get a huge sense of what it takes to write a big book, a book with a lot of responsibility attached to it, and one she took very seriously. And this was just a beautiful conversation. It's a beautiful novel, and I'm delighted to share it with you. So here we are speaking to Rebecca Mackay. Hey, Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. So we're going to talk about your third novel, The Great Believers, today, but the other two will be hovering in the area. So if that comes up, anything from that process, then I would sure. love to bring those in. But the the thing I, I felt most intensely when reading your book was finally, finally, I have an answer to the question. This is something that people have been emailing me for a long time. I just finished a little life. What do, what do I do now? What do I read now? And I feel like your book is the answer. I really do. It's like, it's, it's not the same book at all, but it's sort of like it handles some of the other, some of the issues and some of the friendships and the network, but it goes off in a completely different direction. So for that, I'm sure that everyone listening will, will have ears perked up and be like, what? Now I finally have something to follow that book with. Um, <laughs> but I want to focus on your book because it's a, it's a big book and it's an ambitious book. And I want to start with, you know, where did the idea begin? because it's quite different than your previous book, too. Yeah. Um, you know, oddly, um, you know, because I think it gets talked about as a book about the AIDS epidemic um, in Chicago, which it very much is. But there's also this subplot of um, there's this guy. Um, my, my main character is the acquisitions director for a small art gallery. And there's this plot line where he's trying to procure these um, 1920s sketches and paintings for the gallery. And um, it actually was entirely about that at first. Oh, um, I had, Yeah. I had this idea of this um, older woman. Um, and the reason it was set, the reason I chose the 80s was I figured she couldn't, if she was an artist's model in the 20s, she couldn't have lived much past the 80s. Got it, um, so got I was like, it. okay, I'm going to set it in the 80s, I guess. Um, and I had this woman who um, would be, um, you know, trying to divest her, you know, to get, give away her art collection to this gallery and um, that there would be all these questions of the piece's authenticity and whether she'd actually made them herself in some ways or if it was a fraud or if they were real. And um, so it really started with her and at all these ideas at first about how it was going to go back and forth between the 80s and the 20s. And um, sort of, um, you know, as I was thinking more about this, um, this guy should be in contact with the gallery, figured, um, actually, it was just because in the 100 Year House, in my previous novel, I'd had a married straight couple that was fighting over art a lot. Uh And I was originally going to, it was going to be this, you know, this couple that had actually owned a painting, and she was trying to tell them the painting was of her. There was some... um, long story about that. And I was like, well, I don't want it to be the same. So I'll just make them a gay couple. And then I had a gay couple in the eighties and I was like, well, okay. So, um, AIDS might be sort of a subplot of the book. Maybe that's what's going on in his life. But meanwhile, we're getting all of her life too. And the gravity of the book just really shifted partly as I did research. Um, partly after I, um, 
finished a short story um, for my short story collection that had to do with the AIDS epidemic in New York in the art world. And the research I did into that um, kind of led me to feel like this was really what I wanted to be writing about. Um, so yeah, it, it changed utterly. Definitely. And then Fiona, the sister of, of one of the main character's friends, um, who's lost to AIDS, becomes, if she, how did she become like a weighty enough character that she gets a parallel plot line? Yeah, that was a totally different story. So um, I was um, writing along, it was really all going to be uh, you know, so after after it was going to be about the 20s, um, it was really going to be entirely about the mid 80s. Um, it was going to be about Yale, this guy and his group of friends. And Fiona showed up there as a really minor character. She um, she showed up at this funeral that the book start that starts the book, although at that point, the funeral was not for her brother. I didn't have that established yet. And um, just, you know, hugs Yale, talks to him. And she showed up again at this um, kind of benefit party they're doing at a restaurant as someone who goes outside. He, he leaves the party crying and she was there um, hugging him. And I wrote a detail that I just that really hit me emotionally hard for some reason, which was that he's hugging her and her. She has these long earrings that are mm. in his hands. And he's thinking she she had lost a brother in that version, just not the same guy who died at the beginning of the book. Um, thinking about how her brother would always talk to her about how her earrings were going to get caught on something. And that, you know, I certainly, I felt I had a lot of emotional reaction to writing the book and that like hit me really hard for some reason. Um, and um, so she was just, you know, becoming a little bit um, more active of a character. And I had this major crisis of confidence um, about 150 pages into the book um, I, you know, I worried throughout about um, appropriation, whether my writing could be seen as appropriative in some ways. And writing only from Yale's point of view, even though it's third person, felt too much like ventriloquism. It felt like I was trying to represent this era that I, I mean, I was a kid, I'm not a gay man. Um, just um, really felt like I was trying to kind of own his voice in the book, which would never been my intention. Um, and I really freaked out about it. And then I, I felt like, you know, what might help me um, would be to introduce a second voice, someone who maybe is more like me, or at least is really different from Gail. And Fiona was the one who seemed the most logical for that. Um, and I can't remember at what point I, you know, it, I settled on this being 30 years later, but, um, I think that was part of, you know, maybe making her a bit more like me as well, um, having this contemporary skew on things. So it was weird because it was a, a choice born out of cowardice in many ways, like, you know, freaking out and packing, <laughs> but, um, the, you know, that was the reason to try it. The reason I kept it is that it really worked for me. Um, suddenly I had this span of 30 years. I love thinking about the passage of time in my writing. Suddenly I had sort of a stereophonic or stereoscopic, I guess is what I mean, you know, novel with, with multiple viewpoints. And I was able to do things with those jumps in time that um, made going back to just 1985 feel like it would be claustrophobic actually. The other thing that I noticed is that there is this sort of suspense created. I mean, obviously... Fiona is is looking for an estranged daughter. So there's tension in that narrative inside of the sort of 2015 narrative. But 
Even so, there are she encounters characters that are from the 1985 to early 90s narrative that they make little aside comments referencing things that you haven't yet discovered as the reader. Like, oh, there's a story there was one line. I was like, what is it? I've got to know. Um, and there's a way that that creates suspense, which I think is really fascinating. This question of, you know, how do we use suspense when there's literary fiction being written? Um, and it's definitely achieved really effectively here. Right. I think about this a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I teach about, you know, teach a ton of writing classes um, for all different levels. And um, we talk a lot about um, momentum, if not suspense. Right. And um, talking about like the um, this is this is super wonky, but um, the you know, either you um, are creating suspense, which is questions about the future, like what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Or you're creating mystery, which is questions about the past, like what already happened here. So, you know, Inspector Clouseau comes upon the body and what already happened here. Or you're creating questions about the present, which I guess would be intrigue. You know, like what is, who is this person we're talking to right now? Why is this man standing on the street corner in the rain holding a dictionary and crying, you know? Um, and intrigue can only get you so far. Like, I think it tends to get us into the beginning of a story. Something's going on here that we don't quite understand yet. But if that goes on too long, we'll get really annoyed. But um, definitely, you know, in the 1985 sections, I'm really working with suspense, especially as we start to worry about Yale and um, whether he might have the virus and, and various other people. But in the 2015 section, I was working both directions. I was working with suspense, um, you know, she's trying to track down this daughter who might be in danger or not, um, and also working with mystery of, you know, these clues about what's already happened, um, what happened in 1985, what happened in the intervening 30 years. And, you know, I don't, it's not, you know, my characters already know. I don't have a detective character. Um, we're the ones who are waiting to find out. You do have a private investigator, though. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> he's more focused on the suspense part. He's, right. he's, he's not. <laughs> he's looking He's looking for the missing daughter, not trying to find out what happens to everyone in the 80s. Right. True. That would be an interesting kind of detective. It's more yeah. like a historian. Right. Right. That, yeah, I love those distinctions. And I think that that really does break down how many levels of satisfaction there are, because you're waiting to find out what Fiona discovers, but you're also wondering where she's coming from. And there are these really, I wondered about these intricate links that happen. Like there's somebody, I don't want to like give everything away, but there's somebody who works with the main character who has a connection to the story in the the 2015 section. Are these things that you discovered as you were writing or were they things that you sort of had in mind to plan no, in I, both places? I really discovered them. So um, I had certain characters in mind um, and there is one in particular in 2015 who um, we might be surprised to see. Um, I had certain characters in mind who I felt like um, were going to make it or not make it. Um, in the 80s. And I had those, that, that idea even when I was only writing about the 80s. I felt like I needed to think a little bit about the randomness of who made it. And I didn't want it to be entirely logical um, because it isn't logical. You know, a lot of these people I interviewed, they were like, I have no clue why I made it and my friends didn't. And so I wanted to think about that enough that um, I had 
sort of, if this makes sense, that I had plotted the randomness into the book. Because if I just let logic take its course, I would end up with characters not making it who were the least likely candidates to make it and the characters making it who you kind of thought would because of their, you know, what we might perceive about their lives, et cetera, um, which is not in any way the way the virus works. So um, I sort of, in order not to just fall to the um, most logical thing, I basically thought about it and started, you know, really tried to think about, you know, can I keep a couple people around who you would not think would have made it out? And can I, and can I do the inverse too, actually? So there was a bit of planning on that. But that said, um, sometimes, you know, it's not as if I'm not someone who thinks that your characters just talk to you and randomly tell you stuff and that you, you know, (laughs) are at their mercy or whatever. I I think people sometimes like to talk about that just to mystify the writing process, which is not helpful. But um, there were times when I was working in 2015, and it just felt like the right thing to have a character say about the past um, revealed something to me in that moment too. Maybe, you know, wasn't something I'd I'd planned about um, someone having made it or not. And, um, you know, a lot of these people we learn about sort of in dialogue or through Fiona's thoughts in 2015. And um, it was just a matter of, you know, a sentence, writing a sentence down and that, um, you know, then seeing if I liked it or not, but that, really determining a character's fate um just this you know this kind of passing mention that she gives it in 2015 um is not only what reveals that but was for me the moment of decision that's so cool well did you were you writing it then the way that it appears in the book were you going back and forth or were you writing the narratives kind of separately and then deciding how to intersplice them later Right. Okay. So here's the, so I had gotten up to like 150 pages of just Yale and I was actually, I was staying at Yaddo at the um, artist colony in upstate New York. And I was I having this whole crisis of confidence in this like tiny Garrett room garage, <laughs> which one means cu- cutting someone's head off and which one means a cute room. I, c- I can never remember that one. Anyway, it was a cute room. Garrett is no, the room. Okay. Yeah. No one's head was being cut off. So I was in this tiny cute room that also was, totally haunted and it was where sylvia plath had written her first collection it was like this you know no pressure yeah i know right and this this creepy haunted ass yada room and then we were snowed in there were just like feet of snow and icicles barring all the windows and it was the end of my time there and i'm having this just you know crisis about what i'm going to do with the book um and i did um sitting there in my last couple of days i decided that I needed to do this with Fiona and started plotting it out a little bit, but I didn't start writing. Um, and then it wasn't until a little bit, this was, that was like February. I, I experimented with it a little bit in March. I wrote like three chapters and got them sort of slotted in there, the first three Fiona chapters. And then, um, but if, you know, Yale section hadn't even been broken up into chapters. It was just one big long thing, you know? Oh, wow. Um, but I slotted Fiona in there and then, um, let, I, I do have an awesome writing group in Chicago, a bunch of other, maybe, uh, I think there are seven of us, um, kind of all at a similar points in our careers. Um, and I let them read basically the first six chapters, which was like Yale Fiona, Yale Fiona, Yale Fiona, not telling them that she was new and not telling them that that this was all I'd written for her. <laughs> um, so it was the first- So they had they- no previous exposure to the book? 
Exactly right. They'd never seen it. Um, they, I might have told them a tiny bit what I was writing about, and they had plenty of notes. They're you know awesomely harsh critiquers, which I love. Um, but nobody felt like Fiona didn't belong, or she was added on, or like this wasn't you know the point of the book. So that was really helpful for me as a litmus test. Um, and then that summer, I just you know sort of kept trying to catch her up to where Yale was. Um, so I could continue. And there was a lot of revising his sections then, calibrating, you know, what do we know from her versus what, you know, who have we met in 1985, 1986. Um, so the, you know, the back and forth between them was a lot of thought as well. And then, you know, at the end, it's like you're revising it and you move one thing for a Yale chapter and then you have to move everything for a Fiona chapter too because it otherwise we'll learn stuff too soon. Specifically with this one character who um, kind of resurfaces in Paris later, um, that person's plotline in the 80s had to happen at a certain point in order for that person's plotline in 2015 to make sense. I'm being really cryptic. but No, I think um, you have to be. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, you really do. That's Yeah, that's not something I'm, that is not a spoiler I'm willing to give away. No, of course not. I think it, it ends up, I mean, this is a weird comparison, but another mid-80s reference, it's sort of like a, a back to the future situation where like, if yeah. you travel to the future, you can change the past. And, you know, is that going to change everything? I wonder if it sort of felt like that as you were calibrating everything. Did yeah. I also, I was thinking a lot about, it, it's funny because it's, you know, it's a book in many ways about the passage of time and about, are we the same people we were 30 years ago? And you know, it's not that not the main thrust of the book, but it's definitely thematic. And then I was, you know, as an author having to grapple with those same issues, too, of like, oh, the decision I made 30 years ago, which I actually just made, you know, two weeks ago, but <laughs> the decision I made 30 years ago is totally affecting this right now. And, um, you know, I, lo I love that kind of thinking. I was talking to someone the other day about my childhood obsessions with not only Back to the Future, but Quantum Leap. Oh, like, yes. <laughs> all the time travel stuff, all the thinking in weird ways about time, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm um, my, at least the 100 Year House and this have been obsessed with in pretty major ways. And I think the next project that I'm working on is obsessed with, too. Well, I think it's so fun to play with because there are small questions, I think, that we all ask. Like at one point, Yale, who's in a committed relationship in the first part of the book, says, you know, he feels very dedicated to his partner, but he also says, you know, he keeps saying, if this, if the AIDS crisis wasn't happening, you know, would you stay with me? And eventually, I mean, as I think is often the fate of people involved with paranoid partners, he's, you know, this question repeated to him all the time. He's like, I wonder if that would be true. And you think about how all of the things that happened and how these people were so impacted by that experience right. changes them forever. Yeah, yeah. It's, amazing to me how little the public imagination thinks about the height of the U.S. AIDS epidemic and how very much it is still affecting the lives, um, even just as aftershock of so much of the country. And um, it's, you know, in some cases I've talked to, you know, to people about what I'm, what I'm writing and they give me this sort of like, Oh, I remember that time. That was so scary. And you can tell right away that they weren't involved with it in any intimate way. Right. Um, it's like you just suddenly reminded them of some sitcom that was on in the eighties or something like that's, that's the level of their reaction where plenty of other people. Um, and it's, it's been wild now to, you know, as the 
early copies of the book are out in the world to actually be hearing from some of them who've read the book beyond the people I interviewed for the book. People, you know, coming up to me and saying, I lost, you know, 16 friends and I was, you know, you know, you know, like, um, not necessarily people you'd think, you know, um, older women who are now booksellers, you know, it's often some of the people who read my book saying, you know, I was in the theater scene in San Francisco in the eighties. I lost all of my friends. I was there in the hospital every day for five years. I I still haven't dealt with it emotionally. I, you know, you know, so on the one hand, there are people who just, it's like a blip on the radar. On the other hand, there are people who, not necessarily the people that you would assume were affected, like the people still living with HIV, where it's obvious how that impacted their lives. But the pe- people walking around with these battle wounds that then have been, you know, we, we aren't talking about nearly enough. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's so many things that I think we have a tendency... I don't know. I think it's very American to be like, oh, press on. We're fine. You know, I mean, it's different than the British stiff upper lip. It's more like, keep smiling. Yeah, um, it is. We found, we found a, I, the one part where he says, oh, we're never going to find a cure. This sense of the, when they were talking about at one point about whether or not the bathhouses should stay open and, you know, this sort of don't let that shame us away. You know, we've had this place that's been happy, but now there's this problem and, and what do we do? And, the sort of lack of confidence in finding a cure and what a different thing it is now for someone to find out. It's devastating, but it's not a death sentence like it was. But to think about all of these people and the the pressure of testing and things happening in workplaces and all of it, it's just, I can't imagine the, the level of hysteria that people were dealing with on a daily basis. Well, and another difference is that now, if you got tested, it would be most likely that someone would have um, the virus. And, you know, first of all, there are all the treatments, but also there's um, a very, very long period of time before, you know, there's usually at least five years, even if someone were unmedicated completely, there are at least five years before that turns symptomatic. But what was happening in the 80s is people had had the virus already for years without knowing it. So when there was that diagnosis, and there, you know, we'll see exceptions to this rule within my book, because there, you know, it was the start of the testing era. So sometimes people were getting tested and then did have a long time. Um, But at the beginning of it, especially before the test came out in, in 1985, um, you're finding out days, weeks, months before you die. And, you know, that, that's a, you know, <laughs> another, another major difference between um, the way that this virus is managed now and the way that it hit people then. Absolutely. So you talked about, you know, you started with this art collector who's gathering a collection and for an art gallery. And then, you know, they ended up being gay and it was in the eighties. And, so you kind of backed into this. So at the point when you realized that this was going to be a big process, can you talk a bit about the research that you did? Um, because you thank a lot of people in the acknowledgments about all of the people that were involved. And I'm wondering if you can share, because I think sometimes, you know, people do start writing a book and then realize that there's a big thing in it that they weren't necessarily signing up. Like I am going to write a book about the AIDS crisis, um, which would probably terrify anybody out of doing it in the first place. So how did you sort of grapple with that and start to attack that topic or open up to that topic once it was there? Right. I mean, I think, first of all, like almost every novel that you write should involve scads and scads of research that, you know, you should be, you know, there's, I've, I've read so many books that were ruined for me by a lack of research. Mm. Um, 
you know, when someone's talking about something that they really, the number of times, this is, sorry, this is a random pet peeve. The number of times in books that people have performed CPR on someone whose heart had never stopped, like they're performing CPR on a living <laughs> could kill someone actually by giving chest compressions on someone, like someone who's choking and someone does CPR on them, which is something I saw in a book by an, a major award-winning author. And you're like, could you, did you not think to just have one person look at this? Um, I think that is maddening. I see it a lot in television um, yeah. as well. And they're usually really small things that are so easy to fix. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, mine is when photographers, because I studied photography, sit there, they take a lens off their camera and just sit there staring off into space. And I'm like, the dust! Don't <laughs> let the dust in! Or they're developing, in like the 70s movies, they're developing photographs with the window open. And I'm like, all that paper is ruined. Yeah. Those photographs yeah, are yeah. black. Mm-hmm. So those are my pet peeves. Oh my gosh. And that's what I'm sure that I've made mistakes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, because I, I mentioned so many things and so many details and specific bars and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure in the medical stuff, you know, um, I'm sure that I've gotten some things wrong and that I'll hear about it and that hopefully we'll, you know, if that's the case, that we'll fix it. But, you know, you, always, you can always fix it by the paperback. But <laughs> True, I, true. Um, I really, it was especially important for me to get this right because of the topic and because there are people around who remember this, you know, very well. It's not like I'm writing about the 1880s and no one's really, you know, some people know, but it's not like I was there and you weren't, right? And I mean, I was around in the 80s, but I was mostly, you know, playing with dinosaurs (laughs) at the time (laughs) when this takes place. So um, I basically, okay. Um, I started off thinking that I was going to be able to go to the library and just to get started, do a lot of research on um, the AIDS epidemic in Chicago. Turns out, um, Chicago, you'd think third biggest city in the US was and is, there's basically nothing out there in book or film form about Chicago. It's like not even in the index of a lot of books about the you know his, histories of AIDS. It's all New York, San Francisco, LA. It might be Paris and London. It hit Chicago really hard. Um, but you know, I was expecting there to be like maybe 10, 15 published books, you know, AIDS in Chicago, something like that. And there just weren't. Um, there are p- several wonderful things, and I um, mentioned them in my acknowledgments. There's um, s- um, someone that I was working with, that um, a nurse. Um, had been um, a charge nurse on the main AIDS unit here in Chicago, published a graphic memoir that came out um, kind of as I was doing my research. And there are plenty of online accounts. Um, I managed to watch one short documentary about the founder of ACT UP in Chicago. So I don't mean to say that there was nothing. And people, you know, a few people have done a lot of the heavy lifting on recording um, LGBTQ Chicago history in various forms. But I was expecting, you know, like actual, you know, I don't know, doctoral dissertations that got published, major books, and I wasn't finding it. So um, I did a lot at first online, um, finding direct firsthand accounts. I also went to the Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago, and they have on file every back issue of a weekly paper called the Windy City Times that um, still is the main gay weekly in Chicago. And um, fortuitously, that paper had started in 1985. 
So I was oh, able to read every, I sat there and read every freaking personal ad, every um, bar ad, every article, every op-ed, every whatever from 1985 to 1992. Um, it was really interesting because you'd follow these little plot lines of like, you know, some bar that they, you know, some bar out in the suburb that the police were trying to close and then you'd follow the story week by week um, and um, you get to see what happened. So there was that. And then I also started sending out the bat signal on Facebook. I have a lot of gay friends um, and I do have some friends who are HIV positive, but the problem was those weren't people who could necessarily tell me about Chicago in the eighties. Um, right. You know, they, I have friends who are HIV positive who live in other cities. I have gay friends who are my age here in Chicago, which is just too young. So, you know, just I just started trying to get closer and closer and closer to were you here in Boys Town in the 80s and out enough to tell me some of what was going on. And um, it took usually a couple of degrees of separation, you know, like someone I went to grad school with would introduce me to her friend from college and I'd sit down with him and he, um, you know, moved to the city and came out in 1992, but he could tell me a lot of stuff. But then for that guy, I'm saying, who should I talk to next? And he's introducing me to a couple of other people, one of whom has been positive since 1982, didn't live in Chicago, lived in Indianapolis, you know, so um, right. kind of this um, finding all these trailheads, you know, and trying to follow these trails. And, you know, the whole time my, my unicorn that I was chasing was, you know, could I find one person who is you know, has been positive since the early to mid 80s and lived in Chicago and was out. And by the end, I finally talked to one person and, and is still alive. I mean, to be honest, that's like, you know, when you're talking about someone who's been positive since the early 80s, that's the issue, right? Yeah, um, that's amazing. Yeah. So I finally um, was able to sit down with this one guy who, um, you know, it was actually late enough in my research that I didn't have, I just wanted to hear his own stories. I didn't have as many questions for him anymore because they'd been filled in in many other ways. Um, but this guy who'd been um, a major act up activist who um, is, you know, was just absolutely lovely. And um, he brought with him, we're sitting in this kind of corner booth in a restaurant um, during very quiet hours. It was like three in the afternoon in this restaurant. And he brought a scrapbook with him and he opened it up. And this is something that I wrote into um, Fiona's story, but he opened it up and um, he hadn't opened it in a long time. And all of these funeral bulletins fell out all over. The and then he was trying to sort them back out into the right order. And he was like telling me, I mean, it was, it was just, I, I, I just felt, you know, in, in so many cases felt so completely honored that people were willing to share these stories with me, having never met me before and just going on the word of one friend who's saying, yeah, she seems okay. <laughs> you know, um, letting me into their homes in many cases, cause people didn't want to talk about this stuff in public. Um, talking to me within like five minutes of meeting me, talking with me intimately about their sex lives, um, which wasn't, yeah, I was never going to ask those questions, but you know, it's, it's often part of the story and was volunteered um, and talking about people they'd lost. And um, there were many times people started stories and then couldn't finish them. Um, but the of thing course. is, I'm, in, in the end, I'm really grateful 
like, well, two things. Someone does need, first of all, to write the nonfiction account of AIDS in Chicago, like the big, massive tome, um, you know, with the huge bibliography and, and everything, because I haven't written it. I've written fiction. But that said, on this, you know, I guess on maybe a selfish level, I am grateful that that stuff wasn't there readily available for me to hide behind and to feel like I can just go through this book and highlight everything because this forced me to get out there and do the legwork. And it was, it ended up being emotional research in many ways rather than just logistical research. And also I'm hearing details about like, you know, the stickiness of the floor of a certain bar, um, which is not something that you're going to get out of a book, presumably. Yeah, certainly not a biography. No. That's amazing. I think that's true. I mean, I think that there's something intimidating about writing about topics that requires you to get that close with people, but it can be the most satisfying part of it. Yeah. How long did the process take from when you sort of realized the AIDS crisis was going to be part of the book to kind of finding all of the people that you talk to? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a really clear memory on it. I know that I started writing the book um, in the spring of 2014, um, but it was a very slow start. And okay, no, I can I can put this together. I put this together by um, different residencies because you know I have young kids, so not a lot got written at home. It all gets written in these chunks at certain residencies. So um, fall of 2014, I was really digging into the online research. I know that, and so I think it was March of 2015, and early 2016 that I was doing all these interviews um, and doing things like, you know, going and reading um, the, um, the Windy City Times. So it's about, a, you know, maybe about um, six months of kind of writing without the direct research and then a year and a half of, it's not like I, you know, constantly research for a year and a half, but, but spread out over that year and a half, um, meeting with people, getting their stories and things like that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important to know like that you know that it takes this time because I think people always want things to go quickly but sometimes that's really difficult when you're doing this kind of work. And it's a novel, it's going to take you like 5 years to write no matter what, right? So <laughs> um, the other I should add, the other thing that's really important to me is that um I had several people read it for um accuracy and just um tone after it was done but before my editor saw it. So I had um it was, you know, kind of really strategic in who I chose because you can't have too many people read it. Um, but um, one guy who's just a fantastic writer has, um, you know, is has been out and gay in Chicago since the 80s um, and has done a lot of stuff on um, LGBTQ history in Chicago. So he read it. Another guy who was a lawyer who was also part of that community but was helping me with some of the legal stuff and I wanted to make sure I got that right. But he was also calling me out on like, you know, floor stickiness and things. <laughs> and then this nurse, um, this um, this AIDS nurse who um, could tell me if I messed up any of the medical things, which it was funny. The um, with and I'm, I'm sh- And again, I'm sure I've still made mistakes, but um, I've been so careful in researching all the medicines and all the diagnoses and everything. Um, and those weren't the issue. But the thing she caught was that I had someone someone who'd just been sedated or something sitting up to try to take a sip of water. And she's like, no, no, no. She's like, you feed them, you give them water on a little sponge on the end of a stick. 
And I was like, that is amazing. And I need to use that. And that's, I, you know, I can't believe I almost missed that. So she, you know, things, things like that. Yeah, I think it's, those are the things that it's easy to miss and the things that really make impact when you get them right. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Definitely. I think that's, that's great to hear all of those those parts of it. So I, w- I was interested too in the timeline because of the choice for the more contemporary part to to be set in 2015. Because there's always this challenge when you're publishing a book and there's the time in which you're writing it and how long that takes and then the time in which it comes out. And yeah. so there's this um, 2015 I was, was the writing future. it in 2015. Okay. So um, I was at an artist colony again, because that's the only way I get any work done. And um, I was, um, I, you know, I, I work a lot in um, Google calendars, which is really geeky, but um, kind of plotting out what happened on what days using a Google calendar. And I'd actually for 1985, I'd like scrolled back a lot of years till the days of the week matched the days of the week in 1985. Oh, awesome. Yeah, but I was, um, it's really funny, because it's in my own major um, like it, it, if I have all my calendars turned on in my own Gmail calendar, that stuff will come up. And so if I'll search for something, um, and it, you know, I'll be like, a, you know, search for some keyword, um, often having something to do with Chicago and it'll take me back to like this fictional event from 1985. And it's like, Yale does this, <laughs> it um, comes up in my search results. It's That's very awesome. Like it. I want to keep it there forever. But anyway, I was working in, it was the fall of 2015 and I was writing the fall of 2015. And then the fall of 2015 in Paris turned out to be kind of cataclysmic. Um, and right. um, that happened as I was writing like I was, I was trying to write it for like, you know, the days that I was writing, like I'm going to write Tuesday on Tuesday and I'm going to write Wednesday on Wednesday. Um, and then this stuff happened and, um, I was then left with the decision of, you know, am I going to move this all, which would, there's so much math involved in doing a novel. Um, just, you know, how old different characters are and having to go back and redo, you know, if I moved this by a year or two, you know, is her daughter a different age? Did she, was she born at a different time? If she was born at a different time, that affects a lot of stuff later in the novel. Or do I leave it where it is and somehow write that stuff into the book? And, um, you know, it's not a major spoiler, um, but ultimately, um, decided to write it into the book and also decided not to let people know what month it was where we were in Paris or even season it was so that it isn't, doesn't feel like, you know, heavy handed dramatic irony coming at you the whole time. Like, you know, this thing is coming so that it could actually be a bit of a surprise. That's yeah. That's intense because a lot of people have talked about this, like writing in the very recent past it's like if you write about the 80s like there's all of these crazy things that happen but we have some distance and can kind of get our minds around it but in that if you're writing Tuesday on Tuesday you know it's like you're flying without a net a little bit and like anything that happens today could be something that needs to be included and who knows if that's going to happen yeah yeah and I thought about you know at the time I was like well I could always I always have the option to make it 2016 and then you know it's a whole other issue Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't want to make it sooner because then her daughter would be too young and that was going to mess stuff up. But um, 2016, first of all, there was flooding in Paris in the spring of 2016. And then I was like, 
they're talking politics the entire time if it's 2016 it's about, yep. it about other things so I'm I'm happy that I left it where it was yeah exactly I feel like 2015 2016 it's like there are all these things that are still with us and right. it's like what else can you think about if you get past 2015 there's there's yeah. too much exactly that's so you're like I have one big issue in this book I don't need you know a whole well, other one that was it. It was like, are you kidding me? Like, oh, now now it's a book about terrorist attacks too. Awesome, but um, it's it's fairly minor, you know, in the background. It's not. It it um it makes some things happen, but it's not. You know, it, I think it's clear even when you're reading it. Like, this is not going to take over the book, right? So then you you came to the end of it, and and now it's now it's out in the world. How are you feeling about sort of releasing it? Um, I think I feel good. Um. You know, it's this is my fourth book, and so I've been through the ups and downs of this before. Definitely, um, it's you know, it's always really exciting, and it's really exciting. Um, the best part of it always is you know, hearing from people who really connect with the book, and I think in this case, that's going to matter a lot more to me than with some of my previous books. Um, you know, that it's not like they were you know, glib or anything, but they, they weren't necessarily getting um, the emotional depth that this one has. And so I, you know, I am excited to hear from people who um, have read it and um, want to talk about their own experiences. So that's very exciting. You know, it's, you're always um, facing the fact that there are going to be wonderful and really um, humiliating things that happen when you publish a book. Oh, yeah. um, you know, it just, it's, it's inevitable. People, you know, some people aren't going to like it. And also, you know, you'll do events that no one shows up for and, and all those things. But, you know, I, so far the response has been really wonderful. The early reviews, the pre-publication reviews have been um, kind of everything I would have dreamed of. And um, I feel like there's a lot of good buzz around the book, which is great. I'm just, you know, I'm going to just trying to I don't know. It's, it's, it's also this weird period of like, I have to get everything else off my plate. So I have to like empty my inbox and all these other things that have nothing to do with the book so that I can go on tour without stuff hanging over my head. So that's, that's never fun. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm ready for it to be out in the world. I'm very excited for it. Yeah, it's just it's a really good book. I have to say. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And then you're already working on your next one. Yeah, I'm working on it mentally. Got it. Um, I've, I've written maybe five pages of it. And, um, you know, hopefully, as I clear everything else off my plate, like that's going to happen. Um, but um, kind of, you know, trying to prioritize that stuff, but then hopefully we'll be able to really dig into it this summer. But I'm very excited about that, too. That's yeah, that's perfect timing. You get you get a little bit of a break from from teaching and have some space. Yeah. And it's also I think it's really important to be working on your next project when your book comes out. So that anything, you know, anything negative that happens or anything disappointing where it's like, Oh, well, it didn't do this or whatever. You know, someone just said something mean about it. You can be like, Oh, well, yeah, that was my last book. <laughs> oh, I'm working on my new book and it's going to be so much better. And then you've got a whole new calendar in your, in your Google calendar to populate. Definitely. That's so great. Well, I'm so glad we had time to talk about it and I know everyone's going to love it. So thank you so much for coming on Rebecca. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. 
You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.